0: This podcast is powered by the plug.
1: It even
2: Hello, this is Mari Sol locker psychotherapist and consultant. And this is the Resilience and Resistance Podcast. A podcast about successful Black Indigenous women of color who have overcome trauma and become resilient. Hi. Hi. Dr. Adriana Nieto.
1: Marito. For lack
3: of. You know, I realize, like, I always say, like, Dr. Nieto, but when you say your full name, do you use PhD at the end?
1: When I, now, I mean, in a professional context, I say Dr. Nieto. Right. Yeah. I don't. in on, on paper is when it's Adriana P. Nieto, PhD.
3: Yeah. I think I that's never,
1: important. I never say I'm Adriana Nieto, PhD. PhD. <laughs> but I do say I'm Dr. Nieto.
3: Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so every time I do these podcasts, you know, essentially this is me talking to all of my friends. This is a podcast where I talk to everyone that I love. I think about like, when did we first meet? And I actually don't remember, but it had to have been 2000 early 2000s, 2005.
1: Oh my God. 2005. We're going to go
3: with 10 years. I don't remember
1: where it was. I feel like it was at my house or maybe at a bar or probably. And you knew we had, you know, mutual friends.
3: We, we did have mutual friends.
1: Um, and um, that's how we met. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's
3: yeah, we true. Yeah, 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 because, you know, they, like, they're like they so big now. It's like striking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> I know. But, you know, now that Santi loves you. <laughs> <laughs> Winning over your whole family one by one.
1: Hopefully, I think Sochi loves me. I hope so.
3: Oh, they're going to be so happy that you actually mentioned them in this podcast.
1: Well, I listened to the one that you all did, and it was so good. I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. Their questions were awesome. Like, hold on. I got a question. (laughs) I'm doing the
3: asking. Exactly. Exactly. They like to boss me around. um, (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit uh, about who you are, what you do, how you identify, all of the things that feel important for our audience to know.
1: Okay. Well, I'm Adriana Nieto, PhD. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I think Dr. you should really introduce yourself that way.
1: It's funny, too, because I say, so sometimes I say, my name is Dr. Adriana Nieto. And then I'm like, no, my name is Adriana Nieto, but I am doctor. It's such a weird place. Anyway, so I'm a professor. I'm an associate professor of Chicano-Chicana Studies and also the chair of the Chicano-Chicana Studies Department at Metro State University of Denver.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am a mother of two uh, beautiful children. So I guess I would say I identify, you know, one time I, I heard Ana Castillo say this. And so I like to be like her and say that, say sort of the same thing, but I heard her say something like, you know, she identifies, I think she said she identified as Mexicana, which I always have. I've always said I was Mexican before I sort of even considered identifying as Chicana Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, but
1: she said something really interesting like it just depends on who I'm talking to like if I'm talking to one audience I might say I'm Hispanic depending on what their context is and I and if I'm in another audience I might say Latina or so it kind of I kind of just read the room to decide how I'm gonna identify but I've never said Hispanic Mm -hmm. Um, although I took I work with an organ I work with lots of organizations that use that term. so yeah, it's pretty fluid but I would say first and foremost I'm I, I say I'm Mexican, I'm mm-hmm. Mexican. Um, and then chicana has been Chicano has been a term that I've come to sort of in it sort of in and out because um, I don't know lots of reasons like I think when I was sort of coming to consciousness about, Chicanismo and the history that is so impactful to me that really motivated me to want to be a historian. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt very excluded from the the image that I thought of as Chicano. I felt like I wasn't, I didn't, I couldn't claim it because I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't Catholic as Methodist, first Mm -hmm. of all. Right. Yeah. My relationship to Spanish has been, hard and in and out and now i i know that i can call it that i'm a heritage speaker but we didn't have the language to identify my jacked up spanish yeah yeah so that always made me i always felt like i was sort of excluded from whatever image i first saw of chicano mm-hmm. um, and also my grandpa used to say he did not like it when we said we were anything other than mexican yeah and we were very close and so you know, I I think I've come to embrace being Chicana, mm-hmm. but very self-consciously Chicana, because I started to come into my feminist consciousness through Chicana feminism.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. when I
1: started to see that that is something that I could, you know, that I could, but I was like, oh, I'm cool with this. You know, like if we're saying we're Chicano, but there's also a lens that I can critique the machismo that I associated with chicanismo, then that's how, that's how I was able to come to it. I mm. we'll get in trouble for saying that, but. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, that was that. I mean, I feel like you did a, a, an amazing segue in terms of what I was hoping to get at, because I think that this idea of identity is being more evolutionary is really important. Um, And really the way that I think about it and conceptualize it, because I think similar in my path, I never identified as Chicana before I came to Denver. It wasn't a part of my consciousness. And also, you know, when people asked me about my identity, I, I identified as Colombian and Mexican because that's how my parents identified. And I think that like you, I think that I did not see myself in that narrative, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: you know, and then I think coming to Denver um, really helped me understand it from a different political lens Mm -hmm. and then
2: helped me understand
3: my mom's experience. You know, my mom grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. She grew up in a border town. And I think that I never really understood that dichotomy Mm
2: -hmm. between
3: a border town and Mexico and what that meant in terms of identity. And I think that understanding Chicanismo really helped me understand that. Oh, interesting. Um, mm. Yeah. So I think that that's a really important piece that mm-hmm. you're identifying in terms of how identities can be, can evolve yeah. and they can be fluid. Yeah. yeah.
1: And they are, and they're also very contextual. Like it totally depends on what the reference point is. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't say, if, if we're in a room full of, you know, people that we know share our same background, we're not going to distinguish between being whatever, white and whatever we're not. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that makes us not white, whether it's Chicano or Mexican or Chicana or Latina or whatever. I use Latina more now. Latin, Latinx is you know, obviously something that is um, being used really, really broadly mm-hmm. in the Context like I'm seeing it used all over the pl- all over the place inside and outside of academia and there's and there's you know it's not something I've never actually identified as Latina very self consciously either mm-hmm. so Latinx doesn't really I don't really use that for myself but I also I like it I like mm-hmm. it as, as an inclusive term that's self consciously you know marking. Mm-hmm. the Stick mm-hmm representation yeah, yeah we know chicana the a did for chicanas like i remember when well i don't i was i don't remember but i read about right all of these- <laughs> I, I like, like wow. that
3: distinction you're like just to be clear i wasn't there
1: <laughs> i was really i was 12 when these things were happening but i read about these things you know when chicanas first start to push back on the use of Chicanos, mm-hmm. the all-encompassing and mm-hmm. They were met with all kinds of, you know, all kinds of resistance. Like, why are you trying to, it's it's the language. You can't change the
3: language. And I'm like, oh,
1: wait, actually you can change the language because it's made up by us.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I think this idea that language isn't fluid either. Like, it's so interesting. I think that these conversations that I I have a lot of these conversations now around language and people's Mm -hmm. inability to adjust you know, to pronouns or, the, you know, again, like, you know, the use of Latinx or mm-hmm. uh, this idea that, that, well, it's too hard for me because it's just not how I understand language. And it's like, language is always changing. Yeah. It's always,
1: it's always been arbitrary too. Mm-hmm. Like all these great ling- linguistic theorists that, that tear that argument down. Yeah. Language yeah. Is arbitrary. It's just a coincidence that, that T-A-B-L-E is the same thing as, you know, the Right, exactly. A representation. Those are hard conversations to have sometimes. They are. They
2: are. And it's so interesting, I think, for myself. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time.
1: The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com. Click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer.
2: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in texas it's and not or see what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in america even though i'm young at heart
3: <laughs> uh, generationally i think like you know i'm definitely in a different you know like being a a Gen Xer, you know, I think that like I'm steadily inching or moving very rapidly uh, into not feeling very much like an elder generation, right? Like I'm not, um, I'm not young anymore. So, but I think that these conversations that I have with people that are in my generation, I think it's really interesting because I feel and, and, and sense and experience a lot of resistance and I tell them like, yeah, you know, all of the things that we were struggling with and grappling with when we were young and we were facing the same resistance from the generations ahead of us, mm-hmm. we have to think about that, right, historically. And like, how can we be more flexible and inclusive and not, you know, let yeah. the generation, you know, um, under us, you know, cl- closest to us feel like we're, we're, they're having the same experience of us, yeah.
1: you know? I mean, I thought that the reason that we were doing all this was so that people don't have to feel the exclusion that we felt. Right. <laughs> we are trying to get rid of those, um, those, un you know what, unintended consequences of asserting our own identity that we're just excluding because you necessarily exclude somebody when you you know, say, this is, this is who we are, right? This is what it looks like. And because you're doing, you're always doing it in what's the word dialectical opposition. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So you don't know, right. you don't belong until someone tells you this is what we are. And we know that we're this cause we're not what you are. Right. Exactly. I, we can't re we can't replicate that. Right. I'm, I, I will not, I, I don't want to be the leader of, of, this entity that I you know am leading without me and not engage in those pushing us in those conversations mm-hmm. yeah how the hell am I supposed to do that on zoom <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole episode I need I, to do an episode of that I know like yeah
1: it's hard it's a hard yeah. time
3: yeah. Well, I'm curious. So, I mean, obviously I know a lot about your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know everything about your life, but I feel like I have a a pretty good (laughs) overview. You don't know my life. (laughs) You don't know me. (laughs) 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 Um, But, you know, I mean, I guess we, we generally talked about your journey into academia and, you know, I think that maybe your challenges different challenges that you've had over the course of your career. Yeah. But I'd be curious just to know more about how you decided to get into academia. What was the motivation? How did you end up there? What was your journey? Yeah. You know,
1: that is a good question. It wasn't like I didn't plan it. Like I I never was, you know, in high school thinking someday I'm going to be, a Chicago studies professor. That was not, Yeah, I I barely graduated high school, actually. I almost Mm. um, didn't go to college at all because my grades were pretty mediocre, like pretty mediocre. I was terrified of math and just not particularly interested in anything except for my journalism class, actually, that I, that I loved my newspaper class. Um, So I, like my Spanish teacher, Dr. Lobato, Raimundo Lobato, he was from a little tiny town of Chama, Colorado, not Chama, New Mexico. He'd get really pissed off. (laughs) He thought he was from Chama, New Mexico. which wasn't that far away, but it was totally different. So he found out that I was not going to apply to college. And he, Mm -hmm. like, jumped my shit and said, of course you're applying to college. You're going to apply to Adam State you go to Adams state and you don't, and cause they like were almost open admission at that point. So my GPA wasn't going to prevent me from getting in. Uh-huh. And he was really one of the only, like all my, all my, literally all my, I went to South high school and all my white friends who I grew up with. As we grew up in Wash park, were getting called into the college counselor office, like one by one. And I was like, well, what the hell? I haven't even been called in. So I, I was like, whatever. I guess I'm not. <laughs> and he was the only one who took an interest. And I ended up going to Adam State, and I didn't finish at Adam State. I switched my major like three times.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I ended up. I'm pretty sure going into deep depression, and I just stopped going to classes. Yeah. And I, and I flunked out. Wow. And part of and there was a lot going on. Like I was an activist. I, you know, I was coming into consciousness as yeah. a young person. And I really, you know, I started taking, I don't even know if they called it Chicano studies. I think they called it Hispanic studies or some, something. This is mm-hmm. in the 90s um, with Priscilla Falcon, who's a professor at UNC now. And yeah. she was like in the middle of finishing her PhD when I took classes with her. And that, you know, opened my world to um, to what, you know, to what Chicano studies is. And it Mm. was, it was, it was amazing, but we also were, you know, you're learning about all of these social movements and you're like reading about the Brown Berets and reading about sit-ins and protests and stuff. And it was 1992 and we, you know, we found ourselves in building a movement to get the, get rid of the mascot. It was the out-of-state Indians. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we were, I was the president of this, the Chicano student org, which was called Estudiantes Unidos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were not Machado, we were not Umas, we were Estudiantes Unidos, and we were open to all, everybody. And, and it came to our attention that this mascot issue was something we needed to talk about. And our, you know, five classmates who were Native American came to us. Some of them were part of the organization and we started working on it and and so i like to attribute my flunking out to <clears throat> depression but also i spent i like put all my energy and all my everything into into that getting rid of yeah. that yeah yeah and i ignored everything else including my own mental health yeah <laughs> yeah so i flunked out of college i ended up moving to oregon with my then (laughs) boyfriends and I felt terrible. So I just worked shitty jobs one you know, shitty tourist job to another. And I had to, I went to community college because I had a like 0.95 GPA or something after flunking out. Cause I didn't, it didn't occur to me to withdraw. Like I yeah. didn't know that I should have withdrawn. No one said, Hey, you might want to think about, instead of just stopping going to classes, <laughs> you can, you can
3: actually fine. withdraw so yeah. that you
1: don't. Yeah. So I actually tell my students that story a lot and they're like, Oh my God, if you can do that, you <laughs> out, you know? So it's kind of <laughs> a cool story to look back on now, but, and then it took me a while to get back. We spent a year in Oregon and I took, community college classes, and then we moved to Albuquerque because UNM said they that I could transfer in on mm. academic probation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they changed their mind when we got there. And then, so I ended up doing community college for a couple more years in Albuquerque. And I got back into UNM and I was like, amazing. <laughs> I mean, I just, I got some confidence. Yeah my writing in in my own like intellectual capacity and i had a couple of faculty members as an undergrad you know who really were supportive and encouraged me and um built up my self-esteem i found women's Mm studies, and and then i so i finished my bachelor's there and then i you know i think when i i had a moment in my chicana feminism class actually with a, it was a graduate student who taught the class Monica Torres I think she's the president of Doña Ana Community College in Las Cruces now by the oh, way wow, yeah so she was amazing and I asked her all these really I kept asking her all these really hard questions because I was trying to understand postmodernism, modernism <laughs> as, as we all are <laughs> he was like I don't know the answers to your questions I really I'm gonna do my best to look them up <laughs> <laughs> but it was you know it was really seeing seeing her in that in that role and thinking you know I, I could sort of do this and I mm-hmm. got a ship in the women's studies department there. Oh wow so I taught as a master's student I taught and you know developed a new class and taught it and I loved it. I loved teaching and I loved learning new stuff and I loved writing and I loved philosophy and so I I, you know, sort of cut my teeth there at UNM. And then when I finished my master's, I swore I wasn't going to go to grad school. I wasn't going to do a PhD because I thought those people were all assholes. And, and then I ended up doing one anyway, we moved to Denver, had, had the baby, you know, I had, we had two little kids and yeah, this program at ILIF came, came up and I thought it looked really cool. And that's, that's, that's how I got here. I sort of lucked out, but I also worked my ass off, so. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean,
3: it seemed like, um, I, I'm curious, though, in terms of your process, because it seems like obviously it was an, also an evolution. Is there a theme here? <laughs> But um, what do you think contributed to, I know it's all coming full circle, this is what I do, but for you, I mean, obviously, like, there was a way that you were able to identify how you, like, you're coming into consciousness in in college and, you know, the work that you were doing around organizing and how that could have contributed to your mental health and, you know, maybe your disengagement from going to class and, you know, education. But what do you think contributed to that in high school for you? What what was the disconnect in terms of not feeling engaged during that time? Well,
1: I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I think I, I don't know, probably I do have a a memory of, I've started to realize why I hate math and why Mm. I don't know math. And I think it's because in seventh grade at Merrill middle school, Mm -hmm. I was in math I had the same teacher for math and then we had to take computer science too so like coding which was yeah I didn't you have to be a good teacher to explain to a seventh grader who's afraid of math what coding is mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. this is in the, late in the 80s so mm-hmm. it's early coding And this guy I didn't understand anything I had I was always confused. I didn't know how to ask a question. So I don't know if I just didn't ask a question or if I asked a question and he didn't answer. And then I asked my friend and then I would get busted and sent in the hall for talking to Mm. my neighbor because I didn't understand what was happening. Yeah. And so I always had this thing with math and then I don't know what happened in high school. I just, oh, I had to live in Las Cruces for my junior year of high school. Mm. I don't know what to do with that. I forgot about that. 'Cause my mom got MS and she she made me move to Las Cruces. Oh yeah. For my junior year, cause she moved there and it was hard. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. And then I had this teacher in Las Cruces who was such a B. <sighs> and she it was AP literature and we were reading stupid Beowulf or some <laughs> bullshit Euro, you know. And she I wanted to take the AP exam.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she told me she thought it would be a waste of money. Oh, wow. The AP exam. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take it anyway. And I took it and I got a three. So there. So anyway, so I had these kind of negative experiences. Yeah. With teachers and it really you know, my own self-confidence and my, Mm -hmm. I was living there. I was pretty isolated. I didn't have any friends. My brothers didn't have to go. They got to stay here with my dad. Yeah. My older brother was already in college, but my younger brother got to stay here. Mm -hmm. And And so I think my all kinds of, you know, confidence and all kinds of stuff probably.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: that I was like, and you know, my mom didn't, she went to college, but she only went one year she had my older brother and so I just didn't really have someone
3: like holding my hand to do that stuff yeah so I don't know yeah I mean it makes sense I think it's not uncommon to have those like um, traumatic associations with our education and then yeah and not having the support that you needed during that time yeah like the high school counselors did me wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like
1: They did you wrong. I was, you know, I went back to that. It was such a cool day. But I went back to that same classroom where Dr. Lobato's class was.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, Because we are, we have these concurrent enrollment classes through Chicano, Chicana Studies. And the teacher of the class asked me to go and talk to the students about, you know, the class, about myself, my research, whatever. And just to introduce them to me and, it was so. It was such a like I can't even. It was a very emotional day going yeah. back to the same room and sitting in there as Doctor Nieto, and it was really cool because I really could feel Doctor Lobato in there with me. You know, it was really cool.
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, whole circle definitely. That felt like one of those moments
3: for me. Hmm. Yeah. It's so powerful. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So talk a little bit about your research because it's been a while since I've been privy to hearing about any updates about the research that you're doing. And I, I remember some of what you had been planning and I don't know if that's still the same. So let me think, where was I in that? I
1: love that research too. I just haven't gotten a final a product out you know Mm -hmm. i feel like it's such a process still so my dissertation was on mexican methodist women Mm -hmm. so i did all these interviews with, with women who remained part of the methodist church and i was trying to look at missionaries and what missionaries thought about mexicans and you know some of them were not very nice when they described us but so i did this you know sort of an ethnography oral history project for that but one of the things that I kept wanting to come back to and this is something that I think Chicano studies as a discipline struggles with Mm -hmm. our relationship to indigeneity Mm -hmm. and so one of the ways that I was trying to get at my own probably you know my own personal relationship with indigeneity is to look to my the experiences of my ancestors Mm -hmm. Um, especially my grandmas and my great grandmas to, to just as like an example of what indigeneity is like for me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't, I, yeah. So anyway, so I started, I, I was listening to an interview. It was a tape recorded interview that one of my uncles had conducted with my grandmother Mm -hmm. long before she passed away the the interview was conducted long before she passed away and in this interview it was this really um oh it was there's like this moment where he asked her to talk about her own childhood and her mother and stuff mm. so she was talking about her mother and she she grew up in or she was born in alamogordo very mm-hmm. southeastern colorado and she told this story about when she was Three or four years old, her grandma, her mother, got sick from her mind, and went to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And, and there was this, and and then in the interview, my uncle said, I think he asked a little, like a real quick follow up question, but not, but like I was in my mind, I was like, no, stop right there and stay on that story. Yeah. And so he followed up, and she said, Yeah, I guess they call it. Postpartum, mm-hmm. and, and I knew that there was this story that my great grandma had been sent to the insane asylum in Las Vegas, but no one called it the New Mexico insane asylum. They called it Las Vegas because everyone mm-hmm. knew in New Mexico if you're going to Las Vegas, you're going to the yeah the asylum is. So I just I like became fixated on this moment, and I wanted to find out everything I could about the the time that she spent. Yeah the insane asylum? How did she get there? Like, what was the process that got her from Alamogordo um, to the insane asylum? What happened? How was the postpartum diagnosed? Like, what ha- did she try to hurt somebody? Did her husband's call? Because New Mexico was only a, a state for like five years at that time. Mm-hmm. So it was barely a state and the whole process. So I just wanted to know everything about about what that was like and so yeah. that's what, that's what my research has been is like yeah trying to find and also you know as a historian trying to find the trying to find the material evidence of her existence yeah yeah in addition to the oral histories that we had i wanted to see evidence of her existence yeah and so that's what i've been doing and yeah Taking me down these really fascinating routes that you know have led me to be thinking more about birthing and midwifery. Her mother was a midwife. I found Mm. out. So my great 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 grandmother grandmother. was a midwife, and she had just died before this postpartum episode. Wow! And so it's leading me down, you know, paths about trauma, which you know I've talked to you about, Mm -hmm. and and but also about like healing. Cause she stayed, she didn't die there. Mm. When I, when I went to, so during my sabbatical, I went and spent some time in Santa Fe and Las Vegas and I went to what is now called the New Mexico behavioral health Institute or something, but it was the state hospital. And before that it was the insane asylum. And they kept records there. Wow some of their documents are not at the state archives in Santa Fe where I had been, but they're at the place. Mm -hmm. So they found, so I got there and I was, you know, talking to the, the, one of the women that does all the work and she went to get the book that had the list of the names of people buried in the cemetery. Wow. To see if we could find my grandma's name. And I said, Oh, she didn't die here she got out because then I wouldn't be alive if she hadn't. Oh no, my grandma was already alive. But anyway, I said, no, she didn't die here. And she was like, Oh, I thought you were coming out. Most people that come here looking for people. It's because they died here.
0: Wow.
1: (laughs) There's a whole other. So there's so many stories there. And there was like this scandal that happened. It was being mismanaged and people were not fully burying the dead. And there was like, flu epidemic was also happening at the same time oh yeah all this new light on what pandemics are like and institutions and mental health and
3: wow
1: fun it's been really really fun it's just it takes a long time yeah i can imagine Yeah. yeah i mean i found her name in the ledger Oh wow! So they had like one of those big old, you know, mm-hmm. those leather, those mm-hmm. leather ones with the bolts in them. Yep, I do. And she she covered up the the name at the you know up here like a, and below because mm-hmm. of um, privacy laws because they might they haven't been dead for a hundred years yet. And her name was there. Wow! But it, it didn't have um, like there was all these. Columns for, you know, why were they sent there and they didn't have any of that information for her.
0: Mm.
3: That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's my reason oh It's called Into the Spirits. That's so incredible. Well, yeah, it's fun. I'm curious, though, how like that journey for you has maybe changed or uh, impacted the way you see your family. So this would be your mom's mom's so this is your mom's my dad's, this is your dad's right. okay my dad's
1: mom's mom. Okay. Yeah. So my dad's grandma. Her name was Graham. They called her Graham. Mm. And it's also I mean I think of how I mean, when you talk about resilience, I think of her. Yeah. Because the story didn't end there. Like, I think she was tied to the wagon and taken by force from Alamogordo to this place in Las Vegas. But then she got out and she went and got her kids, but she only got one of her kids. The other one, the aunt who had been taking care of them made her leave one of the kids with them. Wow. And the other one had died.
0: Mm. And
1: And then they made their way to Denver and she cleaned houses and her brother was here and her dad was here her husband had died of the flu Mm -hmm. I think her her baby might have died of the flu the baby that caused the postpartum she she lived in like uh steam outside of Steamboat Springs she she had a husband who you know took her and my grandma up there my grandma didn't like him and he ended up murdering some man in front of my grandma when she was like a six, seven years old. Oh, my gosh. And she came to Denver and she met another guy and they ended up being married until they died. Like, you know, she was in her 90s when she died. Wow. So I just think about, you know, what was it like for her to, you know... That cliche image of her getting off the train. They took the train from Las Vegas or wherever Roswell or somewhere to down to Union Station right here, where I go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and happy hour. <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. So, so it's kind of, it just is a, it's a reminder of that I come from survivors, which is nice sometimes to think about that. And she went on to have a lot of joy and happiness, you know, like her Mm -hmm. life. Yes. This one year that she spent in the insane asylum was probably pretty traumatic and whatever that got her there was also traumatic, which I don't, I don't yet know what that was, but you know, it doesn't stay like that forever. It's a moment in time. It's not, it doesn't
3: define you.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: That's what I've been sort of thinking about. I love that. Like that idea of, well, as you, as you're talking about this, it reminds me of the interview that I did with Dr. Melody Brown, PhD. And she <laughs> talked about, she talked about generational resilience, like mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, our elders, our grandmothers, you know, and their experiences really allows us to tap into that generational resilience. And it seems like that's, that's what in this journey you've done. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. i mean it's
1: definitely you know caused me to think about what is healing look like yeah you know and we can say it's indigenous healing or we can say it's latina healing i don't know what healing it is but but it's i feel like it's you know i struggle with labeling it like when i'm doing an abstract or whatever and i'm like this is about Latina, indigenous you know like yeah. i don't, I don't I want to distill it to that. It's about, it's about my great grandma. That's what it's about. And, yeah. and she is whatever she is, but to me, she was my, she's my great grandma and her, you know, she was indigenous. Her dad was born out of, you know, mm-hmm. basically rape from the ascendado, and his mom who was Mescalero Apache who had just, you know, so there's a lot, there's a lot there in terms of indigeneity, but it's also, I'm trying to not rely on those essentialist notions that we have of what that even means. Mm-hmm. I just about my great grandma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Try to categorize it, which
0: Absolutely. is hard.
3: Yeah. Especially in your world where everything has to fit in the box. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think going back to what you were saying around this idea of uh, that year in the asylum was a moment in time and didn't define the rest of her life Mm -hmm. um and what has that meant for you like in terms of your own as you're you've been thinking about that and processing it for yourself like what what has that meant for you
1: um I don't know you know I mean my goal with with this project is to describe the daily in her life like the the everyday the cotidiano like they say mm-hmm. in you know religions, lo cotidiano. Mm-hmm. and so it's really when i had time to reflect on it like when i was on tobacco and stuff it was a good reminder of like what are the sort of daily mundane things that help me to think about hopefulness or mm-hmm. help me or just that feel good, you know, Mm -hmm. like when the sun changes at the, you know, when the seasons start changing and the sun looks a little bit different. So I've been trying to think in my own life and practice, I think about what are some of those daily things that Mm -hmm. give you joy, Mm -hmm. even if it sucks. Like I heard this one story that she escaped one time with one of the other patients and they went to a snuck out to a dance because (laughs) they just wanted to go dancing and they had to get away from these I believe Presbyterian missionaries actually nurses and so I I, it kind of forces me to think about some of those daily sort of mundane but also like very nourishing things that we do Mm -hmm.
3: yeah yeah I love that like I think that that's so, like, in terms of our own, however we want to define spiritual practice, I think it's such a broad thing, right? But, like, I think our daily practices are spiritual practices. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, like, this idea that something so simple can be so impactful, right? Like, uh, and it's yeah. so easy to miss that.
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. what has it been like for you obviously growing up in Denver now continuing to live and raise your children in Denver working in Denver (laughs) ready to get
1: the hell out of Denver (laughs) edit that out edit that out you can leave it in I don't care
3: this is not the town I grew up in I will just say that but what is that? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, I mean, there's a way that just as you even as you're talking about your own history, it kind of it feels very like not even being a, a person who grew up in Colorado or grew up in Denver. But um, there's some nostalgia in that, right? Like understanding what South High School is now and you talking about going there and like, yeah. you know, um, what has that how has that impacted just the way that you, I guess maybe view your work and what you do, like, right? Cause you know, the a lot of your family is still in Denver, not all of your family, but. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I, th- I think it's good for my work because I can relate to the students and the communities that they come from mm-hmm. if they're from mm-hmm. here. I also think it can have a stagnating effect Mm. Mm -hmm. or not. I don't know if it's stagnating, but maybe insular, you know, Mm. like really, I know the histories and the economic socio, you know, socioeconomic historical circumstances that have led to people coming to live here over the last couple hundred years. And so I want to say that it like, makes me more grounded here but I also don't know that that's necessarily I don't know I'm processing you know where we all are probably in the pandemic but you know I don't I don't know I think it's I think it's it helps me in the work that I do but I also think personal growth wise I don't know if it's always the most healthy Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely because then it's hard when you have that insularness or whatever the word is I don't want to have such a small world I guess yeah yeah but it also gives me street cred with people like let me tell you how well you know like,
3: <laughs> you're like let me tell you how it was on the north side <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was, and I'm not even a North Sider for real.
1: I came here, you know, I didn't grow up on the North side, but I have been here since before was low high. Well, <laughs> so I'm not a low hire.
3: <laughs> Is that a thing? Is that what they call themselves? A low hire? Highlander. A low hire, <laughs> not a, I The Highlanders. Before. The Highlanders. Oh my God. <laughs> Thinking just like in, in terms of generationally, like, you know, obviously like. You know, your great-grandmother coming to Denver, you know, your dad growing up in Denver.
1: He grew up in, he didn't grow up here. He grew up because his parents met at a mm. Presbyterian church that isn't there anymore on Colfax, basically right where all the bus stops are there for, oh, yeah. at campus. Uh-huh. There was a Presbyterian church there, and that's where my grandparents met. And then my grandpa ended up going to seminary and becoming a minister. And then they had all these kids, and they they moved because the church moved them.
0: Uh, Okay.
1: My dad actually didn't grow up here. He ended up coming here for law school. Oh, okay, yeah. um, yeah. When my mom and he had just been married like barely a year. Yeah. 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 And he's just stayed. And then lots of other family have kind of come also. His brother, one of his brothers moved here. My cousin. Eliana, she moved here for law school and then her parents moved here recently. Mm -hmm. She's not going back to Texas. (laughs) 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 You can leave that in there. (laughs) And, you know, we have um, my dad's other side. So his his mom's side is who, you know, my research is on. And then his dad's side, his parents, my dad's dad's parents, Mm Are both buried at Riverside Cemetery and we've actually been trying to find their where they are because they're just oh, markers and we're going to get uh, some headstones for them oh wow so they're there and so sometimes I'm like yeah well my grand great-grandparents are buried here so it gives me a sense of like I belong here more than other yeah. people yeah
3: like I don't
1: belong here Well, so there's that
3: yes yes yeah that makes sense but th- I, I guess I was thinking about, you know, you having raised your daughter. I mean, you're, you're still raising your son. I guess you're still raising your daughter, right? She's not like in college, but yeah, does it ever end? I don't um, know. So. <laughs> I love it. Sorry, Sophia. If you listen to this, you'll be like, she, ra- <laughs> I'm done being raised. <laughs>
1: She wrote, she wrote a poem on resiliency before you even asked me to do this podcast. You saw, I, think I know you saw it.
3: I, think I did. I, po- I think I posted it on the. Um... She's so, so good. Anyway. I know she is. <laughs>
1: they both are.
3: How has it been, um, you know, raising your daughter there in Denver and I've seen her launch going to college Um, just kind of thinking generationally, you know, as you're just thinking through your research and the meaning of all that and having a daughter. Hmm. Well, mm, I
1: don't know. There's so much there. I mean, I'm very proud of her. I think that she, you know, the cool thing about having a daughter is that they're very, she's. My mom, my brother Mondo says she's my mini me, like, and sometimes when we look at each other, when we're FaceTiming, we're like, Oh my God, we look so much alike. It's so true. My phone (laughs) lets her use, lets her be my facial recognition. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of cool to see, you know, that she's Like I see myself in her and uh, I think for egotistical reasons, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. But it's also been really, I learned so much, so much from her
0: Mm -hmm. about,
1: um, you know, honestly about, uh, about being comfortable in her body. Yeah. You know, and, and intellectually, I know that that's really valuable Mm -hmm. and I'm a feminist and I have a women's studies degree and all that, but she really, is, um, so she's really exemplary in that, mm. I, I think. And also part of that too, is her being biracial, mm-hmm. you know, being biracial and, and watching them navigate that and also really wanting to like fix it. Cause you want to mm-hmm. fix, fix everything that hurts your, your child. And, you know, that's some, that's stuff that I'm sure, you know, I, I can't pretend to understand what that's like because yeah. I, that I don't that experience myself, but I definitely it's really shaped the way I approach my students to Yeah. yeah. I think, and not making assumptions based on, you know, what people look like and doom yeah. you know, that they've experienced. And and she's a you know, I always I have to stop putting this on her, but I see her as a scientist. <laughs> she's like, I don't know if I'm gonna stick with it, mom, but she's you know, I've always she's like She's brave. I feel like she's Mm. very brave because she's entering these, these disciplines and these fields that are typically white and male. Mm -hmm. I've got a real critical intersectional Mm. lens that she applies to everything. And I can, it's just really cool to watch her and, you know, see her grow and support her growth. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, it was hard navigating to the, raising the kids in Denver because the schools are such, because well, we have such work to do with our Denver public schools and really trying to find the right place for, for her. And then, you know, three years later for a sigh mm-hmm. and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and do we keep them at North high school because we're down for the North side mm-hmm. or do we choice somewhere else because mm-hmm. there's opportunities that they might have at North. Mm-hmm. That has been really, that was part of the hardest part of raising the kids here, I think.
3: Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. And how, I mean, this is probably for a a totally different episode, but related to what we're talking about, because I think that, you know, our identities based on how we're raised, how we identify in our neighborhoods and communities really impact the choices that we make. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
3: So as you know, this podcast is called the Resilience and Resistance Podcast. All right. And um, I'd love to hear what resilience means to you. Okay, so I have been
1: thinking about this.
3: Good. Ever I'm since I'm we started talking yeah. about this.
1: Yeah. I think resilience, you said something in one, I think it's maybe in your introduction, I don't know, but you talk about becoming resilient. Mm-hmm.
0: Something, mm-hmm. something
1: like that. And so my, my response to that is that you don't, I don't think that you become resilient. I think that you like, and this is probably just semantics, right? But you're seeking it out. Mm. It's, it's just something that you have to be mm-hmm. as you survive, you know, and navigate life. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not always that, like, sometimes I feel like it's, Romanticized? Mm, I don't feel like it's very romantic. I feel like it's hard. Yeah, and you're resilient because you have to be. Yeah, because of whatever gets thrown at you, or however you dodge it, or however you don't dodge it. Like when I, my head, you know. But so here's how I would define it to answer your question. So resilience is like a response to
3: circumstances beyond your control. Yeah.
1: That's how I would define it.
3: That is a very succinct and (laughs) professor-like definition. (laughs) But I love that, like your thoughtfulness around that, like it's not something that you become, right? And that there is a little bit of a a romantic or maybe idealization around what resilience is, right? But maybe the other side of that is, you know, part of resilience can be trauma or is trauma and... Mm -hmm is are some really difficult situations and maybe resilience just is like, it doesn't, you don't have to, you just have to, you have to access it Yeah. sometimes.
1: Well, but it also doesn't like, well, that's what I don't know. I guess that's a question for you. Yeah. Too. Like what, I mean, is it, is it a goal that you, that you're trying to reach or mm-hmm. is it, you know, a process. Mm-hmm. It's probably both. I don't know. I mean, what do you think?
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's probably, it's probably both, probably at different times, right? Yeah. yeah. True, true. Yeah. I, I think that like in healing, maybe going back to this idea of healing, like I think mm-hmm. when we're in, in our process of healing, it probably is a goal because I do think about resilience as like also as post traumatic growth. Like we have the capacity to grow from our experiences. We have the capacity to become resilient. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a goal, but I also think that it's, it's an evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back to the theme of this episode. Right. (laughs) So thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is so awesome. I'm glad we we're finally able to do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Dr. Nieto. Yep. We'll talk soon. Down for my soul, y'all.
1: Yeah, for your soul, y'all.
2: This ain't a theory, really. Say something that I made up. I lot like to believe it's not fucking selfish, like. As a trauma expert who's worked in the field for almost 20 years, I'm transitioning from clinical practice to offering workshops, training, and coaching to mid-sized companies, organizations, and nonprofits. I partner with companies and organizations who are interested in building the resilience of their staff and empowering them regarding their mental health and well-being. If this is you, reach out to me so we can start a conversation about how I can help. If you know someone who might be interested, feel free to pass along this information. You can find more at my website and the link can be found in the show notes. Again, as always, thank you so much for listening.